Robothespian with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to 2015 and the Robots Podcast episode 173. My name is Jana and we're starting off this brand new year with a look behind the scenes of Engineered Arts Limited. But first, just like last year, here are the news with Christine. Thank you, Jana. In early 2015, two massively open online courses or MOOCs will run, called An Introduction to Robotics and Robotic Vision. Both of these MOOCs are from Peter Cork, who is a professor of robotics at the Queensland University of Technology and the director of the Australian Centre for Robotic Vision. The first course, An Introduction to Robotics, is unlike other robotics introduction MOOCs because it will focus on robotic arms and provides an optional assignment to build a LEGO Mindstorms robotic arm that is controlled from the software MATLAB. Other course topics include creating and measuring motion, forward and inverse kinematics, actuation, endpoint velocity, joint control and rigid body dynamics. The second MOOC, Robotic Vision, covers computer vision as it relates to robotics. Key topics include image processing and acquisition, spatial operators, feature extraction, color, image formation and geometry, 3D vision, motion and advanced image processing. In addition, the second course gives you the option to build a robot vision system with a webcam. And if you built the robotic arm in the first MOOC, you can connect the vision system to the robotic arm to create a vision-guided robotic arm. These courses are both six weeks and are composed of two one-hour lectures per week, quizzes, a weekly programming assessment in MATLAB, and a weekly grade assessment. Registration for these MOOCs is free and open to anyone. For more information, go to tiny.cc slash robomooks or visit robohub.org. Engineered Arts Limited is a UK-based company that originally produced mixed media installations for science and art centres, such as the Eden Project, the Glasgow Science Centre and the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. Since its humble beginnings, the company's focus has changed quite a bit and it now produces and sells an ever-expanding range of humanoid and semi-humanoid robots featuring natural, human-like movement and advanced social behaviours. Their popular products are based on the interactive, multilingual and user-friendly humanoid called Robothespian. This life-sized humanoid robot was specifically designed for human interaction in a public environment. It's been a big hit with the science centres across the UK and further afield. Our interviewer Ron went to speak to Engineered Arts Limited's director, Will Jackson, about the company's success and Robothespian's future. Good morning, Will. I'd like to welcome you to the podcast and get you to first introduce yourself to the listeners and describe what Engineering Arts Limited does. 
My name is Will Jackson. I'm the director of Engineered Arts Limited. We're a small company based in the far southwest of the UK, and we make robots for human interaction. Our best-known product is Robothespian. It's been around about eight years now, currently installed in 17 countries, I think, and we've made around 70 or 80 units. We have a smaller rear-projected robot designed for facial expressions, mimicking human expressions and social interaction type scenarios. Company is now around 18 people, growing quite fast. We also have a number of advanced projects uh, in our research lab that are under development. Will, what type of technologies do you use in your product? Personally, my background's in the film and TV industry, so you could say I come from an animatronics background. Our robots have always been built for specific commercial tasks. So even though we now supply a number of research robots, we have robots installed in more than 10 universities. That was not the design rationale. So these things are built as working machines. Animatronics tends to refer to things that are dumb. They have no kind of programmability or interactive capability That's not what our robots are about now. They are now very interactive, very programmable. We have visual feedback, uh, depth sensors. We have facial recognition. We have sensitive force sensors uh, built into our robots. From an actuation point of view, our robots are quite unique in that they are hybrid. Even our simplest uh, RT3 robot is a hybrid pneumatic electric robot. The pneumatics themselves subdivide into two categories. So we use air muscles, or a.k.a. fluidic muscles, a.k.a. McKibben muscles. These are a novel kind of pneumatic actuator that exhibits really nice properties for humanoid robots, very high strength-to-weight ratio, no stiction, good force control. bit tricky on the position control, but they have... Uh, a lot of nice human-like characteristics. We also use pneumatic cylinders for smaller actuations like fingers. And then we use DC servo drives for more rotary actuators, for example, uh, your axis or the head pitch and roll axis tend to be DC servo drives. We develop everything in-house from the hardware design right down to the electronic level, firmware design, We even do our own robot operating system. We don't use ROS or any of the better known ones, uh, mainly because when we started, ROS was immature and it's also not well suited to robots that are designed for human interaction. ROS was built for robots that were autonomous mobile platforms, basically PR2, which is not what our robot's about. Our robot's about speech. It's about facial recognition It's about social environments, so it was not an appropriate operating system at the time. Under development, we have Byron, which is a fully dynamic biped. Again, this is a hybrid pneumatic electric design. uses some custom-designed air muscles that we've uh, built in partnership with Festo in Germany and some bespoke, very high-power brushless DC motors. It uses a series elastic actuators, so sensing deflection of a spring to measure force control. And one of the key features is it's biarticulate. So 
single actuators affect multiple joints. And it's based on a human body model. So if you look at human arrangement of muscles, muscles often span multiple joints and they will affect more than one joint when they contract. Uh, this is very significant if you're focusing on bipedal gates, trying to maintain balance, because you can actually solve a lot of your balance problems at the mechanical level rather than the control level. We're not the only people working on those ideas. You'll see uh, groups at MIT, um, Oregon State University, Darmstadt in Germany. There's a lot of people working on these kind of ideas now. So uh, I think we're pretty well down the line with it. Byron's been under development for two and a half years now. In another six months, we have to have our first demonstrator ready. We're now running simulations and running tests on real hardware for gate control, gate strategy, hopping, jumping. Many people would be familiar with Boston Dynamics and their hydraulically driven robots. For our kind of entertainment applications, hydraulics is not really feasible or appropriate. The hydraulics are big, powerful and fast, which is great if you're trying to build dynamic robots, but they're also dangerous, noisy and hot which are three big negatives. So we've focused on efficient designs, try to use the natural dynamics of the system. We use the pneumatic components as energy storage in the system, so try and conserve energy that way. Also, we have parallel springs as well as series springs in our design, so we balance gravity loads with springs. This kind of sounds obvious, and we, we do it with all our, even our current RT3, our very economical commercial robot you'll find a lot of balance springs in that robot the reason being is the robot is always the same way up and gravity is always affecting it in the same way there's no point in putting a large motor there to counter a static load you'll see in industry on cranes and larger say KUKA type robots you'll see this kind of balance technology used it's not something that many people apply to humanoids but we do Sosibot is a smaller desktop robot that we have under development, and this is rear-projected uh, facial expression technology. We've put a lot of time into developing human face models uh, as 3D meshes that mimic human facial muscle groups that can be controlled dynamically on the fly. So Sosibot face projection software, you're able to pass parameters to that in real time and animate face uh, for appropriate and subtle uh, expressions, lip sync, eye blinks, uh, eye skates, all of that kind of thing. And underlying all of these robots, we now have a new framework, software framework, which is called Tritium, which is GPL. It's not quite in the state where I would encourage anybody to adopt it yet, but it's becoming more robust all the time. It's based on um, 0MQ and Google protocol buffers, Python Tornado web server. So it's got a lot of fast, modern communication technologies built in. So faster, we think, than the XML RDP that underlies OSs like ROS. I see from what you have told me that you have a good robotics understanding. What is your background? Me personally, I built my first PC from scratch. Well, it was an Acorn Atom, not really a PC at the time. My first home computer, if you will. Uh, when I was about 13 years old, I soldered that together. 
I've been making robots since I was about 10 years old. I am now 48 years old, so I have a fair bit of experience. At college, I studied design, but I never stopped making mechanical things. So I am not a formally trained engineer. However, I've spent my entire life doing it. We now have a large team of people, well, 18 people, many of whom are formally trained and do the calculations to a better degree than I do. However, I still find that an intuitive understanding of mechanics gets you a long way very fast. You can invest a lot of time into calculations that go nowhere. So having an intuitive understanding for mechanical systems, I think, is very important. I started coding in Assembler about when I was 12 years old. So I've been running code most of my life, and I've also been doing digital circuit design. So I learned Boolean algebra and uh, digital circuits, and a lot of my early robots were hard-coded logic gates before MCUs were readily available or easy to use. So a lot of history there. But I've done all of this in the context of an art background. (laughs) So a little bit odd. It's a question of where would a person get the experience to apply robotics in art? What are the robotics careers in your industry? So one of the biggest problems we have in robotics is that it's very multidisciplinary and you really have to have tight integration between many disciplines. So we've got electronic design, firmware design, we've got control theory, we've got mechanical design, just knowledge of actuators, all these kind of things need to tie together. There's also an aesthetic component If your robot looks like a bag of junk, uh, people will treat it like a bag of junk, even if it's the cleverest robot ever. It's not great to make one that looks like a bag of scrap metal. So there's a design element. If you can marry these things together very closely, you can get some really good results. So our team where we work includes creative people. It includes engineers, CNC operators, uh, electronic designers, and we all work together very closely. So We have a a saying in our workshop, uh, we design in the morning, we make in the afternoon and we fail in the evening. So we have a very, very tight cycle from CAD through simulation and testing, through manufacture, through to on the bench tests and then throw it away and start again the next day. There is nothing beats having something in your hand and seeing how it works. You can you can run it through MATLAB, Maple, Gazebo, whatever you want to use as much as you like, but nothing beats having a real robot. So that's where the real discoveries come. So, Will, from the products that we spoke about, what is your customer base? Uh, again, we're probably a little bit different as a robot company in that more than 90% of our money is from commercial sources. Our original robots we designed for science communication. So they were used in public spaces where you had a group of people there, you had a message to deliver, and we were looking for ways of interacting with people that were a lot more fun, a lot more engaging. So uh, a lot of our early customers were science centers. Carnegie Science Center in Pittsburgh in the US had one of our first robots. Uh, Continuum in the Netherlands had one. I think of our first series, we made about six As we've continued to produce robots, we found other application areas. One of our major ones now is commercial users. For example, Telstra, uh, who you all know there in Australia, recently took two of our robots to their experience center, basically to communicate some ideas uh, about things that they're working on. It was a very engaging way to get those ideas across. So that would be a typical commercial user 
Almost by accident, we strayed into making research robots. I got an email from, I think it, the first person to use one of our robots for R&D was at uh, Chapel Hill in North Carolina. They were studying avatars, remote presences, and uh, used one of our robots for, for that. Since then, uh, we have similar projects running Barcelona, UCL in London, Oxford Brooks, Bristol Robot Lab, Nanyang in Singapore, Central Florida. All of these uh, educational institutions now use our robots as an R&D platform, broadly because they're open and they work when you take them out of the box. We're used to tough commercial situations where failure is not an option. That's pretty attractive if you're working in a lab to have a robot that just works. So many R&D robots don't ever. So... (laughs) I think that's partly why they've been adopted for that. Also, the HRI-type users, we just had uh, one of our sociobots go to Plymouth University. They're studying human-robot interaction. Uh, Again, Bristol Robot Lab are uh, studying that kind of thing with projected face technology too. So that's that's another kind of market segment for our robots, but kind of an accidental one. Our main focus was the commercial applications we're looking at what can you do with a humanoid robot now? Not in five years, not in 10 years, but now. We believe that in order to drive the technology forward, you have to find real-world applications. Now, people will tell you, okay, my robot's going to be robot butler. It's going to uh, look after your elderly mother. It's going to get the shopping. It's going to do this, that, and the other. Show me it. You get the usual answer as well in about five years. That doesn't cut it with us. We want to see things we can do now. And the entertainment, information, interaction type of applications are things we can do now safely. That's another reason for using compliant robots is we try to make them inherently safe. If you're going to be around people, you cannot use big, tough, position-controlled actuators like you might find in an industrial robot. It's just going to go right through someone. It has to stop when it comes up against you and it has to use minimal force. So that's kind of an overview of the application areas that we're working in. The final thing I should mention is there are spin-out technologies that have come from our robot development using parallel actuation, uh, hybrid pneumatic electric drives, and some of these have possible industrial applications. So we're also working with industrial partners looking at how we can possibly use compliant drives, the hybrid drives in industrial situations. What is the future for role-playing or character robotics? The main attraction of a performing robot is the fact that it's a robot. So if I was an actor worried, you're not going to be replaced, you know. So it's, it's not about replacing the jobs that people are doing. It's about providing something that people haven't seen before. Our robots are very particularly robots. They're not people. They have human characteristics. We identify with them. They have the same kind of movement curves. They have the same proportions. We try to emulate human expressions. But at the same time, they are very much robots. So we have already done a number of stage installations. We have three robots working on stage together. That's been running for a couple of years now in Warsaw, in Poland. And these are robots performing on their own. It's a fixed program. They don't interact much with the audience. So from a control point of view, it's a one-way street. We're now moving on to things that are much more interactive. So robots that are able to focus on particular members of the audience, 
to know when people are not reacting well to it, you know, to be able to direct any speech they're making appropriately. So uh, these are the kind of areas we're moving into now. The future, I'm, I'm going to keep this very specifically to humanoids because this is our area. Robotics is a vast area. You know, we could, we could get into all kinds of sub-niches. But for humanoids, uh, I think these kind of communication entertainment applications are the ones that people are going to see over the next few years more and more of. So you're going to start seeing the odd robot around uh, your airport terminal, probably selling you ice cream or, or just telling jokes. There are already a few technologies that have popped up, like you might have seen rear-projected people popping up at airports. I've seen a number of those. So it's basically an extension of that. They're going to become much more sophisticated. Uh, We're going to see much more movement. You're going to see them around shopping malls, that kind of thing. The really hard tasks, manipulating objects, moving around difficult environments, they're really still a few years off. We don't have any legal framework for that kind of machine. We, you know, what are the regulations for a humanoid robot that has to run through a crowd of people? There just aren't any. And that's potentially a really dangerous thing. So getting a regulatory framework uh, in place is one of the things that has to happen before we'll see these things being used. It's interesting that you spoke about compliance. What are the safety aspects required in public demonstrations? Our robots are force controlled, so even if you stand right up close and the robot gives you a whack, you're not going to get much more than a small bruise. To this day, we've never had any significant injury from a robot, touch wood, mainly because they only have enough power to move to make the gestures that they need to move. And they are inherently compliant. They're pneumatically actuated on all the larger movements. Our next generation of robots have actually active compliance and force sensing built in. Slightly more dangerous, it's a bit like fly-by-wire. If your control system fails, you can lose your compliance. So we have to build in a lot of safety factors into that. Our current commercial robots are not capable of manipulating objects of precision movements. Our next generation very much are. They're capable of lifting quite high loads and making precision manipulation and things like that. Uh, So the control task is entirely different. Basically, current generation are not that dangerous, so putting them around people is not too scary. We say the people are usually more dangerous to the robot than the robot is to the people. It's much easier for you to break it than it is for it to break you. So it, it, it is an atlas, don't be afraid. So, Will, where do you think we are with mobile ground-based robotics? One really interesting thing is here we have the water-based robots and the air-based robots that are really the most advanced autonomous vehicles that we have, or semi-autonomous, autonomous I mean in a uh, mechanical sense, not in a control sense. So why don't we have autonomous land-based vehicles? Well, we have some wheeled ones, so they're self-driving cars. We don't have anything with legs other than probably Big Dog is the best example, Boston Dynamics, but it seems to be way behind what we have in terms of UAVs and ROVs. I would say the reason for that, air and water are fluid mediums, they're soft. And if you put a a rigid robot in a fluid medium, the medium complies to the robot. So you're able to maintain control and everything's good. When your UAV hits the side of a mountain, things go badly wrong. The same thing with your submersible, that it's a rock. Everything goes bad when rigid robot hits a rigid thing. That's exactly the situation we have with biped robots or even quadruped robots 
we have a rigid robot coming in contact with a rigid terrain. To try and tackle that with position control is almost impossible. You have the Honda Asimo scenario. Asimo works great if you put him on a polished surface where every piece of geometry is known to the tenth of a millimeter, it's fine. As soon as you put him on unknown terrain, it's not fine. So we need force controlled, we need bouncy robots to work against rigid substrate or in a rigid environment. Boston Dynamics have demonstrated that with their hydraulic robots. They're able to respond fast enough to the environment that they can behave in a springy way. However, generally they are not springy. Big Dog does have some springs, but it's generally uh, mimicking the action of a spring through a very high-speed hydraulic. Not very efficient. Really interesting robots that are coming up. There's a nice cheetah one that's just come out of MIT. They're using things like really low impedance drives. So the robot's very back drivable so it can conform to the environment without even having to have active force sensing. These are the exciting areas, I think. Once we've got very compliant robots that are very bouncy that can work in rigid environments, then the land-based robots will catch up to the, the submersibles and the UAVs. So, Will, what is your take on social robotics? There are some really interesting things you discover. So one of the main things is while you're in a kind of lab environment or you're working as a company and you're trying to imagine what people would do, what you imagine is not reality at all. What actually happens in an interactive scenario is nothing like you imagine. And keeping your robot kind of locked up and in development means you're probably going in the wrong direction. We have a policy that we don't try to imagine what people are going to do and we don't try to imagine what the problems are going to be. So don't address problems that don't exist and you can invest a lot of time and energy into that. What we find in an interactive scenario is actually people are really, really predictable. They're probably more predictable than the robot. You can set up certain things that the robot will do and the response you'll get from a person will be very, very predictable. And that's partly because we're used to interacting in social environments. There are keys, there are clues, there are things that we just take for granted that we do every day. And it's quite easy to get robots to elicit those same kind of responses from people. A really simple example, if I just do that, I'm raising my eyebrows. In a social context, that can mean your turn to speak, that kind of thing. So turn-taking with in a robot conversation can be greatly simplified by things like that. So, Will, what is your take on the use of humanoid robotics? Where should we be going? I just love robots, and I, I, I particularly like humanoids. We get quite a lot of people who are quite aggressive about that or very negative about it. They say, oh, you know, what a useless branch of robotics to be in what's the point of making a humanoid i i always agree with them because i think they're absolutely right for utility purposes humanoid robots are not at all appropriate if you want to wash your dishes put them in the dishwasher that's a dishwashing robot don't go out and try and buy some two million dollar robot to wash your dishes it's just a stupid idea the same thing if you want to get a beer from the fridge get a conveyor belt well, get up and get it yourself. You know, these are not the kind of tasks that we want to focus expensive hardware on. The other thing you need to look at is the economics of that. If you've got one really expensive piece of equipment that's servicing one person, that person's got to be extremely rich. Otherwise, the economics don't work. So if you look at industrial automation, you'll see very expensive production line robots, one, two million dollars possibly. The economics come because those robots are producing 10,000, 100,000 expensive cars. 
and the cost of that robot is spread over many units. If we apply the same thinking to humanoid robots, the humanoid robot has to interact with a large number of people. If it's working in a big public space and it sees 10,000 people a day, the cost of that robot becomes insignificant. If it's performing a utility task, which would be replacing very low-paid labor for one person, that economic model is bound to fail. So I agree, humanoid robots are useless for utility tasks. You don't need to tell me. (laughs) On behalf of myself and the podcast, Will, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak to us. Okay, thanks very much for talking to me, Ron. And that's all for today. As always, you can check out our website at robotspodcast.com to access further information, images and videos linked to this episode, as well as all our past episodes. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye! Robothestian with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.